Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting with us um, by way of introduction, we've been doing a long series on uh, the book of Galatians, and we'll take a pause this week, after this week, um, for the Advent season, and we'll pick up a new series. And if you are interested in what that series is going to be and maybe some helps to study along, um, then I, get on our email list. We can send you an update. Uh, you can fill out a card in the back there before you leave or go on our website. We'd be happy to connect you with that information. Um, and by way of sort of invitation or to sweeten the deal, if you're new here to come back next week, generally speaking, during Advent, we make the sermons much more compressed, much shorter. So if you get a little bit tired and sleepy during this sermon, just remember next week, it'll hopefully be about half as long. Um, after reading this, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Dear Jesus, I pray that wherever we're coming from this morning, that you would meet us where we are. We have so many different needs, so many different expectations about what we want from a worship service like this, what we're looking for in church, what we're asking of you. Father, I pray that you would help us to, instead of come asking and come wanting and demanding, that we would just wait to hear from you that we would follow the truth wherever it leads, even if we bring in previous hurt from the church, even if we are coming in with a great deal of skepticism, that this could all be true. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would seek the truth, and that we would be sought by you. Father, I pray that as I speak, that you would guide my words, uh, that I am just as needy of er as everyone here, uh, needy, needy of your grace. And we pray that you would bless us through your word and through this teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe you remember in 2002, a little girl, age of 14, Elizabeth Smart, was abducted uh, from her home. 
and she was taken by Brian David Mitchell and his wife. And what puzzled many about this abduction is that she seemed at various times during the months that she was held to have opportunities to escape or to at least have opportunities to alert people uh, as they went through their daily lives that she was being held against her will. And for some reason, she didn't do this. Now, we're not casting any type of blame or, uh, you know, why a question or doubting her because she's 14 and this is a very traumatic event. But there's this curious type of relationship that captors have with their, or that those that captives have with their captors. And since 1974, with the abduction of Patty Hearst, psychologists have called this relationship, used a term called Stockholm Syndrome. And this describes a captive's behavior in doing exactly the opposite of what would normally be in their best interest, what their survival instincts would normally dictate. They appease their captors. They ingratiate themselves to them, even at times developing a sense of attachment to those who have abducted them. And it seems ludicrous, but do you remember the passage that was read, an Old Testament passage from Numbers 14? This is a very common experience that Israel had been liberated from real slavery. They had been set free, and now they grumbled at Moses, take us back, take us back to slavery. Well, Egypt was indeed a rough place to live, especially if you were a Jew, but it was familiar. It was predictable. It was a hard life, but for some reason it felt safe. Stockholm Syndrome is all about coping. It's all about coping with life's difficulties, with getting through life's difficult spots. And sometimes we choose enslaving behaviors. We choose enslaving relationships and patterns of thought, even religion, to make life more palatable, to cope with the difficulties of life. Now, Paul tells us that there's a similar type of syndrome going on in the church at Galatia. There's a similar type of pathology, and he makes a diagnosis first, and then he talks to the Galatians about the distress that he feels on their behalf, and then he talks about some desire that he has for them, a desire for them to get out of this slavery they put themselves in. So first of all, we'll just go through this, basically write down the text. First of all, in verses 8 through 11, we see Paul's diagnosis. He diagnoses, diagnoses their condition, that they had become Christians while Paul had been with them, but something is now happening that disturbs Paul. They are turning back to a new type of enslavement, and he identifies this as turning back to weak and miserable forces. As we talked about last week, these spiritual forces, these elemental forces that he's talking about, was the pagan worship of earth and fire and water and air and celestial bodies. And on a surface reading, then, we would think that what Paul is telling us is that the Galatians are reversing back to the worship of these things. He says they're going back to these weak and miserable forces. However, we know, as we talked about last week, this is exactly the opposite of what's happening. They're ostensibly going in the opposite direction. They're adopting Jewish customs and Jewish circumcision. And as we read there, they're adopting this calendar, this approach to the calendar and the way that they worship, the way that they celebrate that... Am I popping here? Oh, what's going on? Sorry. Um, They are now following very religiously the Jewish law 
And what Paul is saying, and this is amazing as a religious Jew himself, that these customs, circumcision, following the calendar, following Torah, following the food laws of Israel, that these are indeed weak and miserable forces. Now, I won't belabor this because we've talked about this a good bit in our study of Galatians, but what this means is that we can take almost anything, things that are good, things that are beautiful, and turn them into things that are enslaving. We can take good and beautiful things, our morality, our piety, our heritage, our national identity, and turn them into means of individual enslavement and even oppression of other people and certainly of division within the church. But notice this. What did he say? He said that they're weak, or more literally, they're impotent. These things are impotent. But then he says in the verse immediately following that they're enslaving. So which is it, Paul? Are they powerless or are they powerful? He seems to be contradicting himself. Well, maybe you were here three or four weeks ago, and we looked at the middle part of chapter 3, where Paul talks about the law in exactly the same type of way as he talks about these weak and miserable forces. In verse 21, in chapter 3, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Do you get what he's saying? If a rule, if a practice, if a system, if a national identity could have been given that could have imparted life, then there would have been no need for rescue. Then that would have been exactly how Israel would have found their life in God would be through those things and those things alone. They wouldn't need rescue. Jesus' life and death and resurrection would have been entirely superfluous. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the law is powerful enough to enslave, but it's not powerful enough to save. The law rules systems will never save you. Without the intervention of God Himself. Now, he says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. First, they didn't know God. They were slaves. But now they do know God, and they're becoming slaves again. And what we see here is that the antidote to slavery isn't acquiring better knowledge. It's not acquiring the right spiritual practice. It lies rather in what? Verse 9, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God. You see, the, the point of Galatians, the point really of the entire Bible is not revealing the pathway by which we come to know God, but the story of how God has known us in Christ Jesus. The foundation of theology of Christian spirituality is God's act of intervention. It's His act of knowing us and giving us the name of Jesus if we are in Him. And he knows us, not as Jew or Gentile, not as slave or free, apart from all religious distinctions and all of the qualifications that we may have or disqualifications. Back to last week, verse 4, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as son, uh, adoption to sonship. It's one of the linchpins of this entire letter is that here's what has been going on in the past, and this kept going on, people trying to make a name for themselves until Jesus intervened, until he came into our world, into our system, and granted life where lifelessness existed. Now, perhaps that's you this morning. You fit into that narrative. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God, but maybe you don't quite feel that free. Maybe your life feels beholden to any number of things, and you're wondering, where is this freedom? Where is this liberation? How do I experience this sonship? You feel like you're still bowing to your calendar, your to-do list. You're bowing to your success. I will be successful or else. Or maybe you're bowing to a certain type of form of freedom. You're saying, I will be free or else. No one will tell me what to do. Or we're enslaved to our urges, our fears, our appetites, our anxieties. Or maybe, and this may be more likely, you don't know that you're enslaved. Many of us in the church are so good at the religious act of keeping it all together and looking like we, th- we have things under control, that that image now controls us. We want out from, these, out from under these things, but it's scary. We want out from under our captor, captors, but they've become so familiar to us. So Paul gives, first of all, a diagnosis, and then he expresses his distress about the situation in Galatia. He changes his tone in verse 12. His diagnosis was brutal. It was pulling out the behavior that was going on and saying, look at how it's destroying you. His diagnosis was very direct and very brutal, but now in verse 12, he begins to talk to them like a concerned parent like someone who loves them deeply and is distressed by the situation that is going on. You see, he's not just a doctor that's making a diagnosis, but he loves these people. He calls them brothers and sisters. And this is really so big as we think about our own attempts at change, about how do we begin to be people who follow hard after Jesus and do away with enslaving behaviors and things that we know are self-destructive. Because if we think, you know, oh my, I'm enslaved to this, i got to change, we can make our changing just as enslaving as the behavior we're trying to leave behind. We think, i got to change, i got to get out from under this, i got to stop, but don't you see what's still at the center? It's you. It's me. Paul is writing on behalf of God, and he's trying to represent that Father's heart, and he is saying, brothers and sisters... And then later in verse 19, he says that they have, the Galatians have Paul's heart so much that his distress is like a mother in childbirth. That's how he feels about them. And friends, we've got to understand that this is why God wants you and I to change, to deal with destructive patterns, to deal with habits that enslave us and enslave others. We've got to understand that God wants us to change whatever that looks like for us because we have a piece of His heart, because He is distressed over the way that we are inflicting damage on ourselves and upon others. 
He's like a mother in childbirth. It distresses him, and he's saddened like a parent. Now, is, is that hard to grasp for you? Oftentimes, it, it really is for me because it's much easier to think that God makes our change a condition for his acceptance because that's how we treat ourselves. That's how we treat other people. Maybe that's how we've been treated by a parent, that if we don't get it right, if we don't mind our P's and Q's, if we don't get it together, we can forget God being gracious to us. And that's the tape that plays in our heads many times. But Paul says, my dear children, how I long to be with you. Do you see the sin in Galatia is not ostracizing to Paul. It makes him want to draw near to them because he loves them. And our sin, our behavioral patterns, as terrible as they may be, make God long to be with us so that he can meet us in that distress. He can meet us in that need and begin to change us. He wants to change us through love, not through coercion. Paul is being very direct, and he's pointing out the error in Galatia because he loves them and he wants them to be free. What's his solution? Well, he says, become like me. Not me, but Paul. Become like me. That seems a bit immodest, right? Imitate me. Well, this is the very first direct imperative in the whole letter. This is the very first thing that he's told the Galatians that they must now do. And what does it become like me? What does this mean? What's he talking about? Well, he's referring to his decision as a Jew to forego the Jewish law, to come out from under Torah, to give up his deep religious heritage, to become basically like them, Gentiles, without any religious heritage. And you see, Paul had status. He had recognition He had fame. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the elite of the elite. And he gives it all up to show the Galatians that the way to God isn't through the maintenance of external badges and behavior. He abandoned everything for them, and now they're taking up some of the very practices that Paul gave up for them. And he is saying, he appeals to them desperately, I beg you, imitate me in a life that's not subject to anything beyond the gospel. Imitate me in a life that's not subject, to, not subject to anything except the liberating work of Jesus. Imitate me. Do you have models in your life that you seek to imitate? Do you have people that model grace like this? Now, who do we normally look to? In our culture, we look to celebrities, we look to the beautiful, the powerful, the successful, people who appear to have conquered life or conquered a particular area of life. And honestly, this is the celebrities that the church looks to as well, people who have had success in church, success in their devotion, success in public speaking. And we look to them to lead us, and we create this celebrity culture and a cult of personality. Paul says, imitate me, but who is he to the Galatians? He says, as you know, in verse 13, it was because of an illness that I first first preached Christ to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, do you see, he had had been a trial to the church in Galatians. They They had had to take care of him and care for him. 
Now, the circumstances of this illness are lost to history, but this word for illness can also mean injury. And it could be that Paul is convalescing in Galatia after one of his many beatings or floggings or whippings. In other words, he walked around with scars. He walked around clearly having not conquered the world, but it had conquered him physically speaking. And there were letters that circulated widely in the church that didn't make it into the Bible, but they talked about Paul. And there's this one line in one of them that talks about Paul walking towards them and the conversation that these two people are having as Paul comes. And they talk about, they make comments upon his appearance. And they say, well, Paul is short and he's bald and his eyebrows join in the center. So he had a unibrow. And he walked funny. Maybe he walked with a limp or he walked bow-legged, but whatever it was, as he came down to these people, he looked funny. He didn't look like a celebrity. He didn't look like an Adonis. He looked like someone who had been born with some unfortunate features and had then been beaten because of his faith in Jesus. And so here's Paul, perhaps laying in bed, convalescing before the letter was written, obviously. He's funny-looking. He's injured. He's dependent upon the care of the Galatians, and he's telling them, give up on the gods that you followed all of your life and trust Jesus. And who was Jesus? He was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, impoverished, and then murdered by the imperial power of Rome. And Paul says to know him is to know life. Paul says to know this crucified person whom the world apparently conquered and killed is to know life. Imitate me, he says, in receiving that life. Paul says to know him is to receive life. Paul says, I was a murderer and a persecutor and a terrible Pharisee, and he gave his life for me. Do you have mentors like that that help point you to Jesus, point you to very countercultural models of what success really looks like and what life is really all about. The Bible talks about people to model and people to imitate quite often. One of the uh, great passages is the so-called great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews. And if you read through that list, none of these people would have made the cover of Fast Company. None of them would have made the cover of People magazine. They weren't necessarily good-looking. They weren't all all the time powerful people, but many of them were adulterers, polygamists, slave owners, drunkards, people who had screwed up royally. And maybe they understood something of grace that us lesser sinners don't get to experience. Maybe they understood forgiveness in an incredible way because they had failed in incredible ways, and God was faithful to them. And if these are the kind of mentors that we need, maybe we don't have to look very far. Maybe they're next to us. But the good news is, is that maybe we can be one. If those are the kinds of people that God is looking for to invest in other people, people who have blown it and failed and yet look to, look to Christ for grace, then we can be a mentor. 
Well, there's a lot more to say there, but let me move on just for sake of time. Um, we talked about Paul's diagnosis of what's going on in Galatia. We talked about his distress over that because he loves them and he wants them to change because he feels like a parent to them. And then finally, Paul's desire. Now, maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe this is new to you and you're having difficulty resonating with the Galatians falling into this religious servitude. But a careful reading shows that Paul is being really careful to use categories that imply that all of humanity is, in fact, enslaved. Nicholas Berdyaev is a Russian philosopher in the late 1800s, and he says, humanity is in a state of servitude. We frequently do not notice that we are slaves, and sometimes, sometimes we love it. Again, Stockholm Syndrome. We frequently do not notice that we are slaves, and sometimes we love it, but humanity also aspires to be set free. It would be a mistake to think that the average person loves freedom. A still greater mistake would be to suppose that freedom is an easy thing. Freedom is a difficult thing. Or as I quoted in your bulletin, the wonderful movie, Shawshank Redemption Red, who's been there for 30 or 40 years, he looks around at the prison walls and says, these walls are funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. And enough t- time passes, you get so de- that you depend upon them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. The first thing, friends, is that we have to notice we have to look. We have to inspect our lives. We have to admit that we are enslaved to this or that. Maybe it's something very big and it's obvious to everyone but you, or maybe it's something a little bit more subtle. Maybe it's something that's more acceptable in the church or in our culture or in our job place. We're enslaved, but it makes us more successful. It makes us do better jobs. We work long hours because we're enslaved to success. And so everyone applauds our enslavement. We need to assess. We need to admit. We need to notice that there's something that I'm looking for in this world that I haven't yet found. There's some experience. There's some love. There's some peace that I've been searching for that seems forever just out of reach. Maybe I'm not beholden to a religious system, but maybe it's sex. Maybe I'd be lost without the stature that my job provides. Maybe I would fall to pieces if I lose my children's approval of me. You see, in these verses, it's Paul's desire not that you would just have an experience individually, but that you would be embedded in a community that is drawn to a new voice, a new joy, a new beauty. In that same movie in Shawshank, Andy Dufresne is one of the other protagonists, and he has ingratiated himself to the warden because he can do his accounting and he can keep his books. And he's working in his office one day, and he discovers all of these records, and he pulls one out, and it's this beautiful Italian opera. It's a duet duet sung by two ladies, and he puts it on and begins to play it, and it strikes him. And it's so beautiful to him that he takes the microphone, the PA system, over the whole prison, and he puts the PA, uh, the microphone beside the record player, and he turns the volume up, and then he locks the door. And the warden is out there banging on the door, telling him and threatening him, if you don't stop this right now, you'll pay, and so forth. 
And Andy Dufresne just sits back in the reclining chair and puts his feet up on his desk and just lets that opera play out across the prison. And Red again says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best, best left unsaid. I'd like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird had flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. You see, while they were still in prison, they got a vision of something else. They got a vision of what life could look like on the outside, what freedom looked like. And it was captivating to them. My dear children, Paul says, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And the pronoun here becomes plural, in you, in your church, Galatia, in your church, in town, until Christ is formed in you, in your midst. Just as we see that we need mentors, we also need a community where the gospel is being lived out, a community that doesn't reinforce worldly narratives of power and success, but one that transcends the social and cultural and economic boundaries and doesn't let anything divide the community, that the gospel is what's at the center, the liberating work of Jesus Christ, the grace that sets people free. It's a place where every person is saying, I was lost, but now... I'm found. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would be a community where Christ, uh, you are being formed in us. Lord, we are needy of this. We admit that we fall short of this. And so we pray that as we are dependent, that you would be formed in our midst by the power of your Spirit not by us following a religious set of rules or laws or a ladder to climb up, but that you would climb down and that you would sit with us, that you would be present in our midst, that you would change us, that you would make us into the people that you want us to be, that know and love you and invite other people to know and love you as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.